Hello and welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, a weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists and cutting edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Dr. Jason Boynton, sports scientist and cycling coach, Damien Roos, who's the founder of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast and a professional cycling coach, and me, Cyrus Monk. The Cycling Performance Club podcast is recorded live in the presence of an online audience on the Clubhouse app. You can join in and ask questions or participate in any of the discussions as we are having them. This week, we are looking at nasal breathing, and Damien has been having a close look at the research and the hype surrounding this, and we will be discussing this research and how legitimate these claims around nasal breathing might be. So, Damien, do you want to take us away and outline the topic for this week? Sure thing. So, this is one of those things that I mentioned uh, a while ago in the uh, coaching to-do list uh, because it seems to have slowly been coming at me from different angles. So, it's one of those things I wanted to just have a really good look at. And to narrow this down... It's, for me, it, it came down to does nasal breathing really improve performance? And I wanted to try and understand specifically how does the way that we breathe during exercise affect our performance? I'm butting in here after we recorded the show to say that this show started out about the main topic, nasal breathing. But as you'll hear, we quickly shift off topic and into a discussion on evaluating new interventions. And there's a lot of value in what we discuss. For me, that value is moving research away from the idea that research is just finding sources of information that confirm your pre-made decision on a product or intervention, and really letting the information guide the process, which, by the way, is one of the reasons I like doing this show with Jason and Cyrus. They might not have the same ideas and come at interventions with a desire to let the information uncovered do the talking. Anyway, I just wanted to give you a heads up that that's what's coming, but let's get back to the topic. Breathing is this thing probably people don't think about too much. I put a little bit of time into thinking about breathing here and there, but overall, it's this thing when you're mid-workout, you're trying to get as much air in as possible. You're just probably thinking about riding your bike and moving forward and just doing it. It's not something that consciously uh, you would shift up in the middle of a hard effort or whatever to go from your mouth to your nose. So I wanted to look at this thing of will modifying your breathing give you a performance advantage? All these sources seemed to come from one place. So this information seems that it's coming from one place. And I'm not going to really talk directly to that original information source. I just want to talk about the ideas that it's generating because I don't, I don't really want to get stuck on this idea of trying to disprove someone or or go after anybody. We'll and save that for so, another episode. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it would be, there's <laughs> be a, a lot separate to it, issue. That, yeah. 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 And and I was yeah. just trying to focus it down into one mm. sort of area, but there is actually a lot of different parts of this because breathing is more than just say choosing nasal breathing for one one part of your uh, recovery and we've spoken about this Jason there, there is a lot of different elements here different mm-hmm. sports have different conditions different types of breathing for different situations so this is where we're starting and yeah we'll kind of see where we end up I guess so the main technique here is I'll just it is nasal breathing 
breathing through your nose. And uh, I wanted to take a bit of a deep dive. And the first place that I started was trying to understand how we normally breathe during exercise to see if there was any any papers around that. And as expected, just like people have individual differences in performance itself, there are a wide um, variability between how people breathe. And this is during rest and during exercise. And it's a pretty safe conclusion that most people either breathe through their mouth or through their nose during rest or <laughs> exercise, just to cover that off. It's mixed up. And I kind of went digging into like the medical world a little bit in this in this side of things because there were some crazy stats that I was reading regarding how many people actually have some type of issue with their nasal passage. Mm. And uh, it's, it's basically like 94% of people have some issue where there's something going on in the makeup of that whole area that means that they aren't breathing um, optimally. Cyrus, you know anything about that? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy, happy um, in the 94%. I was just thinking from this podcast that we were, we were going to be saying 33% because it's just one in three that, that uh, is the mouth breather. But um, no, I, I would, yeah, I, I'm surprised it is, is that high, but for me personally, it's good to hear. I think this would <laughs> it would be everything from something just like uh, like your septum is just not straight or something. You know, it's just not mm-hmm. that the perfect yep. plumbing is perfect on on people. Yep. So, and then that spectrum would be yeah to the point where some people can't even breathe through their nose and they get into a lot of trouble like that. But that's kind of like the medical side of just making sure that everything. Well, well works. if it's that prevalent, it kind of makes you question how strong is the selective pressure of having a good nasal breathing passage right in yeah, terms of an evolutionary yeah, exactly sense um, yeah that's that's my thinking if you see the incidence that high then it's it's clearly not going to be something that's a going to be a major major issue for the majority of people mm-hmm. unless everybody is just underperforming that too <laughs> the- Fair, fair assessment. <laughs> like in sleep, if they're not sleeping properly, like there's, there's things thrown around. Like if you wake up and you have a dry mouth, then during the night you haven't been uh, using your nose. So then you're not optimizing things. A lot of these types of claims around, but it's kind of stay focused here. And, uh, but I do want to talk about something that kind of surprised me. And it, this, and it's just this idea that nose breathing actually opens the diaphragm up more than mouth breathing. And this got me thinking about something that I, I learned a long time ago and I don't know where I got it from, but this idea, if you would make a, a, an attack, like a 10 second effort or some other type of effort, if you want to recover quickly, I've always had this thing in my head that I would take breaths in through my nose to try and recover better. I don't know if this is something either of you have heard about before. Uh, no, I haven't heard about it. The thing that I've heard the most about it is always just if someone is going well or doing it easy in a race that they're nose breathing. But I think that's more just referred to as the fact that they're doing it that easy that they're able to breathe breathe through their nose. So, But maybe that uh, phrase stemmed from similar things in terms of in a recovery phase if people have been told to nose breathe, then in a race, if you're doing it, it's just implied that you're recovering. So you're nose breathing and finding it quite easy. Yeah, but that would also imply that you're doing it over a longer period of time. For me, it's kind of like you um, say you're trying to latch onto the back 
of a, of a breakaway and you get there and then you take a couple of deep breaths in through your nose and then you just back to mouth breathing because you're still struggling. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, potentially this thing of changing the way that your diaphragm reacts to the breath. And uh, I didn't investigate this. It's just something that came up and, and on, on a bit of a side and it was, it was interesting because it lined up with this idea I have. But yeah, anyway, let's move on. Getting behind the supposed benefits of nasal breathing. It sort of starts with the arguments against mouth breathing, <laughs> the nose breathers and the mouth breathers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main one seems to be that mouth breathing leads to over breathing, which is defined by more air going into the body than the body requires. And then this leads to too much CO2 being removed from the body and the bloodstream. Uh, this is something new to me. I have never heard this before, overbreathing. There's, of course, there's hyperventilating, but mm-hmm. overbreathing, I seem, it seems to be, again, it's this thing of where it's a continuous thing that you potentially are doing all of the time when you're doing any type of exercises versus just hyperventilating because um, of some specific incident or event that happens. So the flip side of this is that one of the supposed benefits of nose breathing is it reduces your exhalation of carbon dioxide and increases oxygen uptake by the tissues. So this is the claim. This is what this is. It comes down to basically this is kind of the claim around this. There's other ideas that nasal breathing filters, warms, and humidifies the air that you breathe. So uh, that's kind of separate, and I'll touch on that briefly. But I wanted to start with this idea of reduced exhalation of carbon dioxide and increased oxygen uptake by the tissues. So have a, a bit more of a deep dive into this. And I do want to note that this info is new to me and it comes from the people that are pushing this idea. So uh, don't shoot the messenger. Mm-hmm. And I'm going <laughs> to try my best to get through this. As I mentioned, it's it's all sort of from stems from this over-breathing idea. And it, it, it seems to be this is the main reason why you want to choose your nose instead in training and racing. And and this is because the body is apparently getting in more air than the body than the than the body requires. So it's based on this phenomenon. So someone went back and based on this phenomenon called the Bohr effect. An interesting thing about this is that it's a Danish physiologist from a long, long time ago that sort of went through this. There's a bit of a challenge against who actually created it, but he, his name was the one that stuck. And so if we step through it and just step through the normal process, oxygen is normally carried by blood in hemoglobin. Yes. Uh, carbon dioxide and heat are produced by active tissues, which are using oxygen to create energy. When the blood reaches the, these muscles, the carbon dioxide and the increase in temperature cause the hemoglobin to change shape and release the oxygen that it's carrying. Carbon dioxide also increases cardiac output and causes dilation of blood vessels, improving blood flow. So when you relate this to exercising, these things all start happening as a reflex response. And when we exercise, we make more fuel in the muscles. So we produce more carbon dioxide in the muscles. And this carbon dioxide dilation of blood vessels supplying the muscles and so we get more oxygen arriving and the hemoglobin releases more oxygen when it gets there does that make sense um yeah 
Uh, it sounds like they're talking about the hemoglobin disassociation curve. And I think we discussed that in a previous episode. I just can't remember which one it was, but it was relatively recent. Um, so, yeah, that, that all kind of sounds familiar. Familiar. Um, we'll put an explainer of that in the show notes as well because it is pretty relevant to this whole topic and there'll be someone will find a, a credible video of someone that can explain it a bit better because if you have a visual for that curve then it it makes it a lot easier to understand it as well mm-hmm. yeah it, it basically conditions where you would want more oxygen those conditions affect the affinity of hemoglobin which is pretty nice thing to happen um but it doesn't necessarily mean that good things are happening one of those things mm-hmm. that affects hemoglobin's disassociation curve it, what shifts it is you know a, a decrease in ph or an increase in acidity or an increase in temperature these are things that are going to change that affinity so if the temperature is going up or if the pH is going down, then yeah, you want more oxygen to be um, released to the working muscle because, I mean, if there's an increase in acidity, there's probably means that there's something going on that you want to um, uh, help increase the aerobic ability of the exercise, if, if that makes sense, right? So just because it's shifting that curve, does that mean it's necessarily a great thing? So uh, acutely, if that makes sense. So, yeah, so potentially even just the idea of, well, the idea here is the, can we enhance the, this effect that's happening through breathing nasally? But potentially even the idea of if this even is important is, mm-hmm. is probably a bigger question to answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very... Uh, very big question. And I think if I, when I was doing a little bit of literature search around this, and uh, one of the things to kind of note is the, the, a lot of the literature that is cited isn't necessarily nasal breathing li- literature. A lot of the stuff that's cited with exercise and performance improvements through manipulation of breathing has to do with breath holding or reduction of breathing rates. And Mm. if you start thinking about it, those aren't the same thing. Uh, So a reduction, even though they're similar, I would be very careful about taking the results of a, you know, breathing rate reduction study and then moving it over to a nasal breathing conclusion because like in other words on the surface if we're the idea of that if you're breathing through your nose you are trying to reduce the volume of air that you're breathing per minute but if you're trying to start comparing that to controlling say four breaths every 10 seconds or whatever breathing pattern it is Mm-hmm. fundamentally that that those two processes may be different so then it, it's you can't compare the two they're similar in a set in some some aspects and mm-hmm. different in others and i guess what i'm saying is i would be careful about applying certainty 
in the findings of one and then applying it to the other, if that makes sense. Um, so that it could be, they could be interchangeable and under certain circumstances, I would just be skeptical of how, um, how interchangeable they are. And yeah, I think another paper that came up was, uh, another example was they were looking at training with swimmers and they were looking at their breath holds and with the swimmers and one group got to hold their breath or breathe four times and the other group per length and the other group got to train breathing seven times per length. And then they took these swimmers and tested their run economy and the four breath group. I think increase their running economy more than the control or the seven, I should say the seven breath group. But even that situation, I would be concerned because it's breathing during swimming and swimming has is done horizontally and has the hydrostatic pressure of the water on the body has the different temperature, uh, stress on the body, which could be also, uh, changing cardiovascular, uh, responses. It also has the, um, the dive response and, uh, there's, so there's a whole slew of things that you get during swimming and changing your breathing during swimming that you wouldn't necessarily get if you were going to change your breathing during cycling and in terms of like what you would get as a training effect. So if I was going to really want to see if what would I would need to really convince me is a training study set up with cyclists, uh, well-trained cyclists, properly powered and um, showing a performance improvement. And I think, I don't know if you saw this uh, or not, but it seemed like most of the studies where they saw improvements, it wasn't cycling studies. It wasn't necessarily well-trained people. A lot of the improvements weren't performance improvements. They were more physiological improvements like hematocrits and things like that, which you have to get into the conversation of is that change in hematocrit or this other physiological response actually physiologically physiologically meaningful in the sense that it will increase performance. So, yeah, yeah, I I can see where there is a lot of how someone who would especially if you are marketing um, in some type of training or intervention system uh, to improve performance for athletes, I could see how you'd be really um, incentivized to kind of glaze over uh, those things and kind of merge these, uh, um, merge these, the, these uh, studies into one to, and to kind of show them as proof that the that this type of thing works but for me as a coach skeptic sports scientist i'm kind of sitting back and going from what i saw in my little search i haven't seen anything yet that really convinces me and the other thing to mention in there is is that there's a lot of seems to be a lot of extrapolation from single acute exercise bouts findings within a physiological findings within acute 
exercise bouts and then extrapolating extrapolating that into a training response and a benefit down the road. Mm. And um, that to me is problematic also because that you that's that happened with my research in terms of i was thinking oh cool intervals is going to be better that has a higher time at or near vo2 max it's going to have higher shear stress during the during the high intensity exercise portion of the session yada 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 get the results after the training study that's not what it said so you have to be really careful when you're realize when you're um reasoning what you think is going to happen if you train multiple times um and then try to extrapolate out what you see acutely into a training result uh, if that hopefully that makes sense there it does make sense uh, <laughs> okay. it's, it's half the coach's job to to kind yep. of do this but i can yep. see how you can get into trouble mm-hmm. if then you're just trying to then push this to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about two of the studies that I dug up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they get around the issues that you were talking about. Um, there's one, well, there's one study, they have nine individuals performing one Wingate test. Mm-hmm. So Wingate is just a 30 second all out test. And they did it under nasal or oral breathing. And they showed that nasal breathing did reduce hyperventilation. However, there was a compensatory increase in heart rate under these conditions, implying increased cardiovascular stress. And there was no difference, so the performance part, no difference in power output or performance measures between the two. So that ticks boxes, doesn't it? Like that, okay, it's one test. It's it's like, I think they said they were kind of trained the vo2 maxes seem to be around 60 or so um but one 30 second test and then you're making an assumption on that seems a bit yeah it one like no cyclists train like that except for maybe track riders and even the track riders have to will be primed uh before they do their sprint because they've been riding around a little bit like a wingate mm-hmm. is from a is from a standing start and well, there's a little bit of a warm up, and then they like for like maybe ten seconds, and then they drop the, the mass, and then you go for thirty seconds. So there's it's there's a lot of times there's not like a really as much of a warm up into it, and then you really have to kind of question like how much of the aerobic system is primed. How much are you breathing at that point? A thirty second effort, you, you, yeah. you're not that's sucking in air to get through it necessarily. Hmm. No, I mean most of the most of the heavy breathing is going to happen after the after the effort, um, especially if you're just looking at one. Basically, what I'm looking at here is if I was going to design design a study to assess this, I would not be using a Wingate test. Uh, it's really strange to me that they've chosen to use a Wingate test a to measure assess of anaerobic <laughs> performance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the most well known measure of anaerobic performance, and they've used that to test the validity of nasal breathing, which is going to be something that predominantly affects aerobic output. So that's really strange study design, even even if the rest of it holds up, just the, the choice of the test is is a peculiar one. Um, so this, I don't think it's strange if you consider that you can basically do that in any sports science lab 
anywhere with and which allows basically any undergrad to conduct a sports science study to publish at at a conference or or something like that. Yeah. As soon as you're like, oh, this is cheap, easy, cheap, cheap easy. Most yeah. most uh, labs are going to have a Monarch bike. You know, the, learning how to conduct a wind, wind gate is baseline uh, things you would you would learn in a sports science course. Holding your breath is going to be a really easy thing to do. Where the, the, and then collecting power and all that type of thing is going to be easy enough to do if you have the right device. And and one one session without any pre testing for the athletes as well. So, yep. Although they did they did assess their VO two max, which which would take longer than the actual tests itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right, let's move on to the next yep. study. Yep. Um, yep. And it was a running one, and they they were trained runners because they were practicing uh, nasal breathing in training and racing for at least six months prior to being tested. And the test was, what do they say here? It's like a trial, a high-level steady-state trial at 85% of their maximal GXT running velocity. I've got no idea what that is. Um, but let's just hope that it's... That's basically their equivalent of their running FTP. Like That's what we talked about, the 82.5% of the graded exercise test like the the uh, maximal aerobic power which you've gained from uh, a step test or a ramp test um that's that would be the running equivalent when i hear that graded yeah. exercise test and they've yep. done a ramp or step and then assessed 85 percent of that is something they can maintain for a long time all right mm-hmm. that's a good that's uh, a good test then i imagine then at least maybe 30 minutes or something of effort as well. Um, the results showed no loss in VO2 max between nasal and oral breathing uh, with an improved physiological economy in nasal breathing. That's about as good as it got <laughs> for me <laughs> digging around. Yeah, and I looked at it. You have to be careful about this study it just uh, because it's kind of weird in the sense that it's, um, it wasn't a training study, even though they were using people that were trained in this way um that was kind of the one of the things that kind of stuck out to me was would have been a better study design or more interesting to me and maybe there's another study out there that we didn't come across that did this but to have the individuals that weren't nasal breathing or before these people decided to take on nasal breathing and train them and see how they changed after a nasal breathing uh, during exercise intervention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that would be a lot more convincing, but this is basically they had the intervention and then they did acute testing and then looked at the differences between doing exercise with nose breathing versus doing exercise with um, oral breathing and then tried to extrapolate Uh, testing conclusions from that. And I'll just read the conclusions off here. So this study supports the ability of recreational runners to utilize a nasally restricted breathing pattern at all levels of running intensity without loss of VO2 max and with superior economy following an extended training period using this practice. So what practice? (laughs) Yeah, it's not clear exactly what they did. Yeah, because without doing testing before the intervention, 
how do you know what changed and how do you know? And they didn't have a control group. They just had this group. They just had, so it's just set up really weird, right? So they didn't do it a proper intervention where they looked at people who weren't doing nose breathing and then looking at the results afterwards to see what changed in terms of all of these ventilatory measures and, and, and performance. And then they also didn't have a control group to compare this acutely. All they had was the basically an experimental group that they tested under nose breathing and mouth breathing conditions. And without getting it deeply deep into the study that, I don't know, I mean, it's not like they didn't find anything, but there's a few other steps I feel like they should have looked at. And they seem like they overextrapolate their findings a little bit more, but I think I'd have to read it more closely before I really came down to that. So this, this, both these studies for me kind of represent where the science or, you know, the, the published papers are at around this topic are chosen because they, they seem to have the bright population. At, at least one of them had cycling of some sort, even though it's questionable the level that the, the people were which for me is a bit of a red flag as as is. I don't know how convinced you guys are at this point that it's something that you would consider in training. Uh, my level of convincedness <laughs> would be zero at this point. Yeah. Well, it gets into this idea of when do you apply an intervention or a supplement or something like that. And in this case, or all these cases, it gets down to an epistemological conversation. And the case here would be the um, the burden of truth is on the person, person, person making the claim. And and there might not be a person, a specific person in a, that's making the claim here, but it's on the promoter of the intervention to, to come up with the evidence to do it. And without proper evidence to make their case, then you would not implement it because otherwise you would be implementing just about every intervention that would be out there, the ones that would work, the ones that didn't work, the ones that could hurt you. And so in this scenario, you carry on with what your normal training is until you see enough evidence to where it would, once you do the cost benefit analysis on the intervention, then you would hopefully see enough of the results. And in order to convince at least me, I would imagine you guys as well, like you're going to want to see a really well-designed study in the specific scenarios that you want to see and before you have an athlete chasing, potentially chasing their tail down this road. Like I, I want to see a really good training study with 30 trained cyclists doing this intervention and then real proper tests done at the end, like how their how did their peak power output change? How did their time trial power change? And then a number of the physiological measures that would hopefully back up and explain the mechanisms for whether there was a change or not. And in lieu of that, yeah, I'm not going to be running after after this intervention, I don't think because the cost is probably too high to implement it based on the evidence that that we're discussing today. 
I got a, a, a random question regarding uh, when you see someone trying to present something and you feel like it's things are being cherry picked because the the papers they're picking, for example, maybe twenty or thirty years old, mm-hmm. um, but it's not. But it never made it past the point of a few researchers looking into it. Mm-hmm. It never moved into uh, the performance world and more, you know, people using it and and mm-hmm. making an impact and stuff. Is is that a like for you, Jason? Is that a red flag? Like, do you you see like good science doesn't age? Yeah, but definitely uh, there's a reason why some things just stop. Yeah, is it a red flag for you when you start seeing these older studies that? you know, and you've never heard of them and out of nowhere. And yeah, I, I, I don't want, I don't want to say the term red flag and some one part of my brain, the, the cynic side might be like, yeah, that's a red flag. But then, uh, when I, if I put the sports scientist hat on here, they could be onto something. You always have to say they could be onto something, but yeah, you know, in our world, as a coach, our time is finite. We have to figure out, does it work? Because we've got a ton of other things going on. And so this is one of those things that I'd be like, okay, why isn't this taking off with well-grounded pulmonary physiologists? I, I think I brought up uh, Jerome Dempsey's name within this conversation when we were first starting to talk about it. And I, I think about him. And would he be promoting this? And or I think of other sports scientists out there that are well versed in hypoxia training and that type of thing. And it's like, well, how much are they pushing this? Because at the end of the day, the sports scientists out there that are working with high level elite teams are very incentivized to find quick and easy interventions that have massive amounts of performance improvements, right? And one side, they have to be very careful about what they implement with an athlete because, again, there's a cost to the athlete. And so they are going to be, hopefully, more reserved in what they do, hopefully. Um, And, I mean, this kind of gets into a conversation I saw a sports scientist a well-respected sports scientist that works with elite teams. And he was talking about the keto diet. And he was saying, yeah, if all I had to do was reduce carbohydrate intake for my athletes and I was guaranteed to see a performance improvement, yeah, I would do it. But there wasn't enough good evidence for him to implement that type of nutrition intervention. And I think it could be said for the same thing here. It's it's not to say that it doesn't work, but it's just curious to me that... It never got picked up and moved forward by anybody, really. But you could see uh, there's not. This is not to say that interventions that don't work haven't been pushed by people in the sports science realm, though. And you could definitely see if you got a strong, charismatic figure pushing this type of intervention. And they were incentivized by a product or service that they were selling to kind of, I don't know, glaze over the the discrepancies that I was talking about earlier with these studies. Then, yeah, you could see how he's might show up like 
the Pied Piper with his magic uh, intervention and say, hey, we've got this system that is going to improve performance. And then they can gish gallop you with a bunch of studies that look good on the surface. And then you're buying their service. And really, it could be the case that as soon as you get one major institution that bought into the service, then it's like, well, what they're doing, what are they doing? We should do that too. So it's a very careful thing. And a lot of the times it always comes back to what am I doing right now? And is this intervention going to be better than what I'm doing right now? Because one of the things I kept thinking about when I was reading through these interventions, I was like, well, especially with the runner one, I didn't get a chance to look at some of the methods deeper, but I was like, I wonder how many interval sessions they were doing because I wonder if you would just be able to get the same kind of response by doing high intensity interval training. And it kind of makes me wonder if, if they were just doing a lot of steady state and quote unquote base training. Well, if they were potentially getting a stimulus from something like breath holding, but weren't doing any kind of hit, okay, well, maybe hit the hit would be better if that makes sense. So I, I get, like I said, I can't really speak to it. It's more about, um, for the listeners, it's more about having that thought exercise and kind of getting back into the research and digging a little bit d- deeper before buying into these things. It's, it's always a good idea. I mean, even if you hear it here and we're, and we're like, this looks good, it's always a good idea to check our references and make sure that it measures up to your standard. Yeah, those are my thoughts. I just wanted to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and to give you a quick reminder about who we are and where you can find us. The show is a collaborative project between sports scientist and cycling coach Dr. Jason Boynton, professional cyclist and cycling coach Cyrus Monk, and myself, Damien Roos, professional cycling coach and author of the Cycling Science Digest. If you want to get in touch with any of us or find out more about what we do, check out the show notes of this episode for links to each of our websites or social media accounts. Also, a reminder that you can be part of the show too. We host the show live on Clubhouse every week. Just search Clubhouse for the Cycling Performance Club and you'll see our scheduled room. And with that, let's get back into it. I got a a question for you, Cyrus. Yep. Um, Something like this is one of those things that you can potentially add on top of what you're already doing. So it's not necessarily where it would be such an intervention that it would drastically change the the makeup of your training and things. You know, like if you were doing an, an easy ride and you just wanted to nose breathe through that ride. Is that something you would consider? Like when you say that you're not convinced, is it something that you would consider trying out just to see what happens? Or it's like it's a hard no until I'm convinced it's a yes? Yeah, well, it does seem to fall in the basket of can't hurt might help Mm. in that it's (laughs) not going to be damaging um or unsafe the yeah where it where it might hurt not in a in a safety regard but it it might be detrimental is if i'm doing high intensity intervals that i can't get enough air in through my nose that i would that would end end up in a decreasing power for those intervals and decreasing training benefits. So I definitely wouldn't consider it in that regard. But yeah, for the easy rides, it's not going to 
change at all my power output or anything in in that regard. So I still think it's just something where I would want to see more evidence even than what's out now. There's there's some interventions that there's limited limited evidence, perhaps a bit more than what we've been able to uncover for this one, where I would think, well, if it's free and not going to cost me any time, then I'll implement it just in case it does work. But with this one, like with the, the limited amount of stuff out there, even though it's not costing me anything or costing me any time, I still still can't see myself going out on my recovery ride today and breathing through my nose instead of through my mouth. Yeah, and for me, I think the, the baseline here is, is there a way to measure if it's actually making an impact? Um, and I think part of the, the strength of the, like, of the argument that is being put forward is there's a couple of simple tests that you can do to test things out. So you can see some type of progression. I, you know, I'm, I'm still, I am actually skeptical on whether that progression is anything worthwhile for performance, but it is this thing. If you could measure it, maybe that would help you see within yourself whether it's working or not. But at this point, if you were to do so for me, if you were to do something like this, it's, it's like that famous advertising quote, um, I know 50% of my advertising is working. I just don't know which 50%. Hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, exactly. it, it's just kind of throwing it in the mix. And I kind of sit on that realm of like, if there's nothing that I could see actually making, like I couldn't measure the difference any way, then I'd just be like, you know, what's the point? Just reduce the mental stress or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's something that's, very prevalent just in science in general that any hypothesis has to be testable and if you're yeah assuming this and if i'm implementing it amongst all my other training then i'm not going to have any way of actually measuring whether there's a benefit from it and this is why i think uh things like this can get some traction just anecdotally within performance realms because if Tade Pagacha, for example, it was nose like just started nose breathing two months before the Tour de France, and then tells his friend, "Ah, oh, yeah, I was nose breathing." Then his friend goes and goes and tells everyone, "Ah, oh, this is what Tade Pagacha is doing," and he won the Tour de France. All like the the inference from all these people thinking, "Ah, oh, this is." that must be the secret, <laughs> not all of the other things that he's doing, all of the mm. other interventions with really high impacts. I think this is how these think kind of things can get traction quite quickly. And, yeah, I, I do sit here a lot of stories, not uh, on this topic specifically, but many others that, uh, yeah, just these little things that I sort of have to think to myself, even if there is any effect size, it must be so tiny compared to the rest of the training and the rest of the interventions that they're doing yet it's the that's the one thing that people will grab hold of and think is the secret to their success yeah yeah and that's that's just the other side of what jason was talking about he's talking about like um the sports scientists grabbing onto it you're talking about the people in the cycling world grabbing onto it yeah so just just yep. how it grabbed gets traction yeah maybe it's my yep. own bias as well um but i feel like the triathlon world is really notorious for this like you, oh he he won Ironman because and all he did was train indoors for 
six months or whatever that story was, or, the, or, you know, he was on the keto diet and didn't consume any carbs and he won Kona, you know, and you get that a lot. I feel like in triathlon, but I don't know if it's, I'm sure it's prevalent in cycling as it is probably in most endurance sports, but yeah, I don't know if we're as bad <laughs> as the, as you could get with the triathlon scene. I, don't I would be interested in testing that out. Like if we did an episode where we all brought in some ideas that we have that we, that we just came to us through just natural progression of getting information from peers and people we ride with and stuff. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting to kind of dig a bit deeper into that, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, One bit of physiology that uh, I forgot to mention was I was looking a little bit into the claims around, around improving aerobic performance after breath holds and breath control type interventions and this is actually a pretty common thing among divers. And but I think this is another thing where what divers are doing and divers increasing their ability to exercise while doing a breath hold isn't necessarily the same as what is going on during the end of a bike race where you can breathe freely. And if you look at these indigenous populations that have been diving for like thousands of years, they have enlarged spleens. So what they get is a splenic adaptation and you can actually have interventions to get splenic adaptations. And what basically happens there is that the spleen kind of gorges itself on red blood cells. It's able to hold on to red blood cells that are oxygenated. And as you continue your dive or hold your breath, then the spleen will um, release those red blood cells into the system and those red blood cells will uh, transfer oxygen to where it's needed. And again, to me, I'm very skeptical that that would have any benefits within cycling and you might say well well couldn't you just have extra red blood cells stored up in your spleen and then at the end of the race when you really need it you could just release it and yeah i'm not sure this physiology works like that (laughs) (laughs) someone's got a paper be happy to look at it but um but it's one of those things that there's there's getting back to one of the original claims around the there's too much oxygen or too much air around or too much ventilation during mouth breathing. And let's see, I, I can see I can see an argument for reducing mouth breathing while you're sedentary. I can see that. I, I would I would entertain that prob- probably a little bit more than this one that's around nose breathing uh, during exercise. And but one of the things to note about you know this idea of there's too much breathing, too much air coming into the body when you're mouth breathing. 
Well, the lungs are overbuilt. They're massively overbuilt. And this gets into the whole myth of people with big lungs are better endurance athletes, which is completely false. The lungs are massively overbuilt and it's a chain. And within that chain, there are limiters and the lungs are not one of those limiters. So it's, it was funny to me when they're saying that there's too much air around and there's already more air in your lungs than you would ever need under most conditions. So if someone has a healthy, healthy set of lungs and they don't have this insanely high VO2 max or cardiac output at that point, but for the most part, under most conditions, when the hemoglobin comes into the lungs, the blood that comes out is completely saturated. And so that means that the transfer of air and oxygen from the environment to the to the blood is not a limiter. And and so well, I mean, and if we're gonna bring up anecdotes about this, I mean what about that one guy that had lung cancer that managed to win the Tour de France? Um, <laughs> I mean, who knows how much he actually healed, his lungs healed after that, but he had significant uh, cancer in his lungs. So it's just a weird argument to me that there's too much air uh, in the lungs during mouth breathing. But again, yeah. yeah. I, th I think this is when... Damien first brought this up in the coaching toolbox, I think, episode. That was, yeah, I remember my first point was that the you have to sort of think about the end goal, which is getting oxygen to the working muscles in aerobic sport and what are the limiting factors along the way and how much oxygen you get into your lungs isn't one of those limiting factors for the majority of people that and anyone that doesn't have any issues then. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And to get to that point is if you think of, you know, physiological processes as kind of chains and some of these chains have branches. And if you think of the f taking oxygen from the environment and then moving it down to the cell, if you think of it just even in an engineering system where you're trying to transfer things, something from one point to another if it's a linear process like that it only takes one place to be constricted and then that slows down the whole process and yeah. and in my mind i think well wherever that restriction is happening there's probably a high likelihood there that that's where the physiological adaptation is going to occur because that's where the stress is occurring may or may not be the case in all situations but um for for a practical example okay when you exercise especially if you're untrained or coming back from an injury or something like that one one of the first adaptations that happen is an increase in plasma volume now you also get an increase in plasma volume when you are exposed to heat stress over and over again and you could argue that you are getting exposed to heat stress when you exercise, right? Because you get hotter. Um, but one of those situations, the heat acclimation, 
you actually get a bigger increase in plasma volume than you do in exercise. And so you could think you're like, oh, well, if I'm getting a bigger increase in plasma volume from the heat acclimation and plasma volume is one of those things that helps you improve your performance during exercise, then maybe I need to do heat acclimation to bump my plasma volume up past where I would get during exercise. And therefore, I would have a bigger benefit from that bump in plasma volume. Except that really isn't necessarily the case because there's evidence to show that just simply increasing plasma volume isn't enough to really do a lot in trained cyclists. Uh, It's kind of one of these things where the jury is still out. So you can think, you know, these interventions like breath holding where you are not really training in say like a specific way like high intensity interval training or something like that if you're doing especially with a breath holding that's off the bike for say right is and even if you're saying like well you you get this maybe the splenic adaptation or 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 something else that's similar even if it bumps it some kind of physiological adaptation past what you might get through the exercise intervention, it doesn't necessarily mean that that adaptation is going to be, again, physiologically meaningful when it comes to something that results in a performance increase. All of these things should be taken into consideration. And this is why For me, it's always good to have a well-designed training intervention with some trained cyclists and to see how the results are after that so that we can have a decision. And then not only that, you might want to see like two or three of these things, these interventions, studies, and make sure that the results are reproducible. But of course, this gets into that conversation that we've had on here before, People in performance sports are looking for that advantage that other people don't have. They're looking for the edge. They just want that little like half a percent, that 1%. And that can easily lead you down this road because you're going to read some papers and you're going to be like, oh, if I could just get do this intervention and get that one 25% or 0.25%, I should say, and improvement, then that will really make a difference in my time trialing or something like that. And people will jump on it because early on, you will not have the research that will help you and, and guide your training. So it's, it is a trade-off for some people at some point, you know, especially the people who are maybe at the very, very high levels where they're like, they would need to jump on something or they get their feel incentivized or pressured to jump on something without the best evidence out there to kind of guide how to do the intervention or to even validate the intervention will improve their performance the way they think it will. So there's my little spiel there. All right, let's just wrap it up here then. Yeah. I did want to just do a passing mention of this other idea of filtering warming and humidification of Mm -hmm. the air because it it's pretty well understood at least when i started looking to it i was like yes of course the nose is a filter Mm -hmm. and it also warms and humidifies the air and uh this process that happens when you're breathing in the nose sort of 
it will change the temperature and the humidity of the air. And so potentially then the difference between mouth breathing and nose breathing means that you could be changing the air so that things like um, dust particles, which are triggers for conditions like asthma, it's sort of helping that. Um, and it, it's it's also said filtering as far as like protecting you from illness, from any types of airborne viruses or whatever that you're potentially exposed to. We start to really move away from like a direct performance benefit mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. And so it, it, it's hard to kind of sell that to me, um, maybe under some general health thing. Mm-hmm. Your nose is just designed to do this and mm-hmm. so just breathe through your nose more. <laughs> yep. Maybe the, the easiest recommendation here, but I'm having a hard time linking it directly to a performance benefit. And there's nothing there's nothing that can can back that up. No one's actually looked into this uh that i could find so yeah just a general recommendation there but but it doesn't hold any weight really for me um so i overall when i look at this topic and the stuff that i've looked at and all definitely considering in uh the input from both you guys i I can safely say that currently there is no strong evidence that nasal breathing helps improve athletic performance in healthy subjects that's my definitive answer to all of this we touched on this and there is a lot of areas that breathing you can get into with breathing and it's not just mm-hmm. performance there's mm-hmm. there's things about arousal states and there's well-known wisdom that's been passed around for hundreds of years about different breathing techniques and there's a lot of that stuff being picked up and commercialized in the last few years and things and i you know there is there is some some merit to to part of this uh but Will I be including it in in any of uh, my coaching practice? Uh, the answer is a hard no at the moment. Nothing has convinced me to do any of that stuff yet. I do a little bit of breathing techniques myself, but yeah, if I was to roll this out, uh, I just couldn't justify the uh, the time and the energy to do it. So that's that's kind of where I've I've come to after looking at this. I've enjoyed looking at it because it has opened up so many questions. Again, like this this thing of when to introduce things, you know, what level of evidence do you need? Mm-hmm. How does that information reach you? And, and and perhaps we should do a case study on something like this and break it down bit by bit why this this doesn't work, what, you know, why we would be skeptical about these certain claims and things. I think that would be really beneficial because it's it isn't it's it's part of a bigger thing. It's not just a one paper or a group of papers or some some science that's been done and then that's good enough. You have to sort of look in context and and it it how it's being presented and cherry picking and all of these types of things. And uh, I think that's a really useful skill because there seems to be a lot of these half a percenters that are out there um, selling selling their wares. And mm-hmm. uh, it would be good to have a bit of an understanding on how to navigate this. I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. I came across one argument that somebody had written in kind of a not quite a journal but it seemed like a professional article and they were talking about mouth breathing syndrome which i guess is something to consider and all of the kind of detriments with that and if you are an athlete and you have the syndrome they were making an argument about how all of the kind of detrimental things that could happen from it and therefore decrease your performance. But I think that gets into that a similar argument with what we made around 
uh, core strength and back pain for athletes and the analogy of, you know, the, the, the motor oil and the, and the engine, right? If you have this mouth breathing syndrome and if it just improves your health, they were talking about how people who have mouth breathing syndrome are more dehydrated because they're, you know, the more of the moisture from the lungs is, is escaping, that just comes down to not a performance increase, but reducing a health issue that that would help reduce the debt potential detriments. But I think it was worth something worth mentioning and was and it wasn't, you know, they weren't necessarily selling it during exercise. It's more like when you're not training type of thing. Right. So um, but otherwise, I agree with you, Damien. I, I think I would not be pushing any of this onto an athlete right now. But, you know, if it came up again and I started seeing more convincing arguments and and research around it, then it would be something to reconsider. Because at the end of the day, it's not a real hard thing to prescribe for your athlete. You know, just take some time to, to breathe in this way. Um, but again, I'd want to see some pretty extensive research around it before I would uh, dive into it. Cyrus, what are your thoughts? Yeah, basically echoing what you guys have said and what I said earlier. It is a pretty easy intervention, which would mean that I wouldn't have to see too much evidence before I would include it, but I would have to see some concrete evidence and it doesn't seem like there's any of that at this point to show that it's going to lead to a performance benefit and in the end, any intervention that we're implementing, we're implementing we want to see a performance benefit. Yep. So. Until I see a study that shows that, I don't think I'll be including it in my training or the yep. training of any of the athletes I work with. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, is like, as I've said before, athletes aren't robots. They're going to have to have a buy-in on this yep. as well. And it, yep. if you have an athlete that's skeptical like we are, they're going to want to see the evidence for it too. They're going to be like, this looks a little bit wonky, right? Because... There's yep. plenty of intelligent, really smart, intelligent, skeptical athletes out there are going to be like this. Yeah, I don't know about this. And then you're going to have to you will have to provide the research to convince them that this is a good, good to go. So it's not it's not just us that has to be convinced. I would imagine like we would have to have the good studies to be able to show the skeptical athlete that it would actually work as well. So another kind of hoop to jump through before I'd be prescribing this. Yep. Yeah, I think we will wrap it up there. Yep. And uh, thank you, Damien, for doing all of the research on this and to Jason for all the physiology background behind it and talking people through the science behind nasal breathing. So if you would like to get in touch with us, you can do that on our social media. So on Twitter, that is at Cycling Club Pod. And on Instagram, that is at Cycling Performance Club. And you can also find us on Facebook by searching Cycling Performance Club. If you're enjoying the podcast and you would like to leave us a review, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And that will really help us promote the podcast and share all of the research we're doing with a wider audience thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time right.